Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. The argument from the poverty of the stimulus has been highly influential in shaping modern linguistics. It claims, in essence, that we must have innate knowledge about language in order to explain how we learn it so well, given limited exposure. In their book, Linguistic Nativism and the Poverty of the Stimulus, Alex Clark and Shalom Lapin take a critical look at this claim. In this interview, we discuss some of the forms of the argument and the various ways in which computational results about the learnability of languages are interpreted and misinterpreted in linguistics. Today I'm delighted to have the chance to speak to both the authors of the book Linguistic Nativism and the Poverty of the Stimulus, Alex Clark and Shalom Lapin. Perhaps I could begin by asking you to uh, introduce yourselves and say a little about your work. Uh, well, uh, my name is um, Alex Clark. Um, I'm in a computer science department, but I identify more as being a theoretical linguist. Um, the research I've been doing for the past, I suppose, 10 years now has really been focused on problems of learnability, um, in particular, how one can learn the sorts of richly structured representations you need to describe language uh, from, from data and various theoretical and technical issues that are related to that, but um, always uh, with the ultimate goal being to um, explain language acquisition and apply these ideas to the fundamental problems of linguistics. I'm uh, Shalom Lapin, and I'm a professor of computational linguistics at King's College London. And I sort of move back and forth between computer science and linguistics, although my home is in a philosophy department. Um, I'm uh, my background is in computational semantics and working with um, Alex. And also before Alex with Stuart Schieber got into computational learning theory about um, six, seven years ago. And my collaboration with Alex resulted in uh, the book that you're interviewing us about and several papers in um, chapters and handbooks. And I'm interested in uh, the whole problem of um, what kind of learning biases are necessary, how much one has to assume as built into the learning uh, procedures and algorithms in order to account for both uh, grammar induction, that is syntactic learning, and semantic learning. And I've of late been working on probabilistic and stochastic models of both syntactic representation and um, semantic uh, representation uh, in the context of the learning theory work that I've been doing with Alex. So how did this book come into being in its uh, current form? It started really, it grew out of a, um, a course we taught together at the summer school of the Linguistic Society of America, which was in Stanford in 2007. Uh, and uh, Shalom and I um, decided to teach a course, which was basically about um, the applications of um, learning theory um, and recent advances in, in computational learning and the relevance of these ideas to the long-standing debates in theoretical linguistics about um, linguistic nativism. So we uh, we taught that course together, which I found a fascinating experience, and then subsequently we decided to turn that into a book. 
Right, and I, I had done some earlier work, um, which grew out of some uh, applied machine learning um, um, research that I had done with colleagues at King's um, on um, topology for dialogue. They've been impressed at uh, the effectiveness of machine learning methods uh, and um, had sort of thought for years I'd worked with a kind of two-world view um, that you use machine learning for engineering and um, classical sort of uh, established conventional models of uh, theoretical um, linguistics and the theory of language acquisition that Chomsky had introduced uh, 50, 60 years ago for uh, your theories of cognition. And the work I did on machine learning convinced me that, in fact, a lot of engineering work might well have cognitive uh, significance and import for the way in which um, we um, at least might, in principle, be able to learn. And so I sought out Alex, who is an expert in computational learning theory and uh, mathematical modeling of, um, of, of the machine learning paradigms that uh, I had been using. And that produced a very fruitful cooperation, which uh, uh, reached fruition in the book. Well, indeed. Um, turning to the book, then, uh, you begin by outlining some of the uh, competing positions on linguistic nativism. Uh, and in particular, you associate these with the um, rationalism-empiricism debate in the history of philosophy. But you also argue that these issues are actually orthogonal to one another. Um, why do you feel that the confusion or the conflation of these issues is so widespread in linguistic theory? Maybe I'll, I'll answer the philosophical part, and Alex can, can come in and clarify and correct. Um, sure. So, so um, yes, I, I, we do argue in the first chapter of the book that the rationalism, uh, empiricism uh, debate, as, as central as it is both to philosophy of mind and philosophy of knowledge and um, cognitive science, is, is in fact very different from the nativism debate in linguistics. Um, and the reason for that um, is that, that um, as we take it, uh, the rationalism-empiricism debate is about what constitutes uh, uh, the source of, of, of knowledge one has about uh, the world and, and um, where one can achieve uh, certainty, uh, whether it come from whether one can achieve knowledge through experience or through first principles in reasoning by uh, deductive models from first principles, whereas in the nativist debate, uh, one is really looking at, uh, as, as it's been formulated in linguistics, the question of um, how many very specific uh, domain particular uh, constraints on uh, the language acquisition uh, procedure or algorithm do you have to assume in order to account for uh, the actual achievement of, of human language uh, acquisition within the limits of data and time and computational resources that are available. And that's a, a very specific empirical problem. Uh, very central to cognitive science, but very different than the rationalist empiricist debate, although there are points of contact that go back as far as Plato, Plato's um, sort of poverty version of the poverty of stimulus argument as he, uh, as he presented in the case of the, you know, slave boy and the learning of ge ge geometry. Uh, but we see these as, as essentially different questions. The reason they got, we think, sort of tangled up is, is um, in part because Chomsky insisted on Characterizing his position as a Cartesian position, which I which I think is is not an accurate representation of the history of ideas. He was in fact presenting an interesting empirical claim about the nature of learning, which is quite different than the Cartesian or the rationalist enterprise. But that that, that association stuck um, and and became sort of embedded in linguistic uh, tradition. Uh, and it was our task, we thought, to disentangle it and also to reformulate the 
the nativist anti-nativist issue as a as a computational problem um, as well as a psychological issue which could be um, rendered a little more precise in terms of uh, what what was entailed in in, in investigating it and, and trying to solve it so you focus then on the uh, on the poverty of the stimulus argument itself uh, which you present various articulations of perhaps we should um, make clear at this point exactly what that argument is uh, is taken to entail within the uh, the various contested ways in which it's used Alex Yes, I mean, I think the question of exactly what the poverty of the stimulus um, entails is um, surprisingly tricky at the moment. I think certainly in the uh, four or five years that the book has been um, between when we started work on the book and today, there's been some significant shifts in the views on what precisely um, the the argument entails. In the book, we take uh, a fairly... Um, classic view that um, that it entails um, linguistic nativism, that it's one of the strongest arguments for um, linguistic nativism. And we take linguistic nativism to be the view that language acquisition um, proceeds primarily through mechanisms or knowledge which are uh, domain-specific, so specific to the domain of language, rather than proceeding... Um, largely through uh, domain general mechanisms, so mechanisms that might be used for the acquisition of other types of non-linguistic knowledge. Yeah, um, that, that, that um, Alex's last point is particularly important, is that we want to distinguish the issue of a poverty of stimulus as an argument for domain-specific uh, um, learning biases for um, grammar induction, for language acquisition from um, the general um, question as to um, whether learning requires, uh, in general, human cognition and learning require uh, constraints and biases. Uh, um, and uh, it's often been assumed by um, critics of empiricist views that that there are no, uh, that a data-driven approach to learning doesn't require learning biases or learning priors if you're in a Bayesian framework. But in fact, that's not true. And we were at pains to point out, as have others before us, that uh, no self-respecting empiricist would ever claim that there are um, not a fairly rich set of, of learning biases and mechanisms which um, are involved in, in organizing human experience. The question is how much of this is particular to specific domains of cognition, how much is, is, is learning partitioned into modules, if you want to use a kind of metaphor that Fodor uses, and to what extent can you use more general learning algorithms and procedures that um, are just um, sort of weakly tuned to data from particular areas. And it's the latter view that we were most interested in, in exploring as a, a viable alternative to, to a rich theory of universal grammar as a, as a domain-specific uh, set of conditions on, on acquisition. Of course, taking up that point, another uh, ground on which empiricists uh, or empiricist approaches are sometimes criticized is that uh, they secretly encode uh, a lot of uh, learning biases whilst claiming that they are not making unreasonable assumptions about the uh, nature of that process. I guess the question is to what extent the algorithms in question are genuinely domain general. Yes, I mean, I think that's that's a crucial point. I think what, when you have a, a particular algorithm, um, then one can examine it, and um, if it's capable of theoretical analysis, you can see the extent to which 
um, there are biases. One can identify the exact biases um, and then you can debate whether they are specific to the domain of language. Of course, ultimately, the most convincing way of showing that a language, that an algorithm is not specific to language would be to apply it to some non-linguistic domain, um, perhaps another area of cognition like, uh, like you know, music or, or, or um, some sort of sequence of motor actions or learning chess or, or possibly even to some completely non-human aspect, um, for example, uh, learning DNA sequences or or something like that. So if you if you had an algorithm and one could apply it to to a variety of problems, um, then it's clearly not going to be um, domain specific. However, I think that's probably um, too much to ask at the moment, given our current level of understanding. I think there's often going to be some um, minor biases um, that are specific to language, if only from um, the point of view of how we implement or define um, the algorithms. It might be possible later on to see to what extent one can, one can trim away or prune away those uh, domain-specific assumptions. But I think it's fair to say that most of the algorithms that we use at the moment do have um, embedded in them some uh, quite domain-specific assumptions. The question really is, do we have um, just uh, a small sort of homeopathic dose, if you like, of that, or is actually uh, there a very, very substantial amount of, of bias in these algorithms? Um, just to, to um, develop um, one aspect of, of Alex's point, um, and also a point we're concerned to make in, in, um, in the book, is that it's also important to, when you were evaluating um, a an algorithm, a learning algorithm for bias in the case of uh, grammar induction and language acquisition, to avoid um, formulating poverty of stimulus arguments in a way that becomes vacuous or lacking in any kind of interesting content. And, and one prime example of such a vacuous formulation is one in which you assume a particular theory of syntax as the, um, the correct description, often um, without argument when there are really good alternatives. You then show that this particular theory of syntax, which may uh, and often does posit fairly abstract structures and a very powerful um, set of computational devices, uh, is, is unlearnable um, it's, uh, from, from available linguistic data, primary linguistic data within the limits of time and, and co computing power available to the child. And then say, presto, nothing up the sleeves, uh, we've, we've um, established the poverty of stimulus, when in fact what you've done is shown that a particular theory of syntax is um, perhaps um, not uh, accessible to efficient learning under constraints of time and data uh, that are available in primary linguistic data and the, and the learning acquisition device. Um, so we, we, we try and um, um, sort of factor out that approach from a more interesting and substantive version of the poverty of stimulus uh, argument, which we take to be the original one and the one that's that's worth discussing, where, in fact, um, you leave fairly open what the what the characterization of, of the properties of natural language are, and you, you try and work out uh, um, as as um, broad and as empirically um, substantial uh, an account as possible, and then see uh, to what extent you could get a class of grammars that would represent these agreed properties. Uh, um, without assuming um, a, an elaborate formal structure uh, as given.
Yes, I mean, if I could add one thing there, I think you, you, you touch on an important point there, which is the class of representations that you're going to be using to do to represent the knowledge of language. So typically a class of grammars. So I think a very, a very good example of, of the debate would be if you have an algorithm for learning, um, say, context free grammars, which are a particular rather simple formalism for representing um, syntactic structure, which were introduced by uh, Chomsky and uh, 56, 1956. Now, from one point of view, one can say, well, if you have, it's impossible to have a completely domain general algorithm for inferring context-free grammars because the representation of context-free grammar is intrinsically a, a something that is specific to the domain of language. But though context-free grammars were introduced as a model of, of, of syntax by Chomsky, they have also been used extensively in non-linguistic areas. So, for example, to model DNA structure, to model hierarchical planning in uh, classic AI. Kinship uh, structures. Yeah, to, to, to model a whole range of other things. So, so on, on reflection, one can see the assumption one's using uh, a context-free grammar is not, I think, uh, really a domain-specific assumption. But when we, we look at it... Um, that was introduced specifically as being a linguistic construct. When we um, zoom out a little bit, you can see that in fact it's something that's really quite domain general. Yeah. And and very often um, formal objects of uh, syntactic representation, like tree structures or other kinds of graph theoretic objects, which are treated as domain specific, can themselves be learned by biases which, while they might be uh, prior constraints on a learning algorithm, can in fact come from broader cognitive uh, domains. They can be used, uh, for uh, for example, uh, to model uh, muriology, that is part-whole relations that give you a kind of recursive um, um, uh, tree structure pattern uh, that's useful in things like navigation or in uh, visual um, um, object recognition in whole part structures. Now, this is a point that, that was made even uh, in, in a debate between Pinker and Jackendorf on one side Chomsky, Fitchenhauser, and the other, with Jackendorf and, and Pinker pointing out that, that um, hierarchical uh, tree, recursive tree structures are omnipresent throughout cognitive domains. So simply arguing that um, they, they are um, characteristic of a class of syntactic representations doesn't, and that you need to assume some element of such structures as uh, priors or um, learning biases on the range of hypothesis of what, what your representation is going to look like doesn't, doesn't commit you to a strong domain-specific position. A lot of work in learning theory, particularly by uh, um, various kinds of Bayesian learning theorists, uh, using fairly um, strong data-driven empirical methods of learning, probabilistic methods, have shown that you can uh, obtain rich uh, syntactic um, representational structures with internal recursion in, in, in um, this uh, more domain-general way, from more domain-general priors. Turning back, if I may, just briefly to the, the question of the theory-internal um, argument, the poverty of the stimulus, as, as you discussed earlier in that answer. Um, and my impression was that uh, you consider it plausible uh, as an assertion in the book that the, let's say, a transformational grammar is not uh, learnable, and that the argument for the poverty of the stimulus actually would work if you assume that there must be transformations in that in that example, and certain other uh, particular kind of deep structural manipulations, but you make the point that the that could be taken as an argument against the validity of the grammar, just as much as an argument against the uh, for, for innate biases. One thing I was rather curious about is um, 
as you remarked, there are various other grammar formalisms which wouldn't necessarily encounter the same problem and which have uh, good coverage, good descriptive adequacy at least. Why do you think it is that the versions that are problematic, for which the internal APS is uh, still current, have so much traction, so much sort of visibility in the literature? I think that's in many ways a result of, of historical and, and, and sociological factors in the field. Uh, so that, that Chomsky himself proposed the um, poverty of stimulus argument fairly early on, um, at least uh, in the early to mid-60s. Uh, it became a very powerful argument uh, in, a particular, in a particular view of grammar. Uh, and um, uh, one of one of the basis for the claims is that the kind of transformational uh, syntax that he was uh, proposing um, was not um, efficiently learnable from data, uh, and I think that the uh, uh, importance and prestige of his work has carried uh, that that argument. Whereas other theories which have dispensed with transformational operations achieved far greater formal explicitness and computational viability, have often been sort of um, relegated to um, Let's say specialist niches um, theories uh, like like um, head-driven phrase structure grammar or various kinds of categorial grammar, particularly combinatorial categorial grammar, which can be shown to have uh, not only a high degree of um, descriptive adequacy, uh, uh, but also um, a fair degree of, of uh, expressive power within fairly constrained comp mathematical and computational limits, but. Um, would never become uh, achieve the, the level of influence um, um, one because they're highly technical uh, and also I think simply because of, of um, the historical pattern of development of um, the field in which Chomsky's ideas have been central as, as uh, sort of stimulating forces for development. Yes, I, mean, I think historical uh, factors are, are the most important. I think it's also one other factor which is perhaps that um, some of the sort of meta-theoretical assumptions that Chomsky makes about what linguistic theory should look like um, seem to favor uh, theories which posit um, a large number of uh, unobservable entities. I think it's partly motivated by um, breakthroughs in theoretical physics where um, there's a paradigm for successful scientific exploration where progress was made by positing, you know, deeper, more abstract, less observable entities from atoms to um, protons and neutrons to quarks and other subatomic particles. And so this was felt to be really a paradigm case for uh, what successful scientific exploration uh, was meant to look like. Um, now, exactly those properties of being deep and unobservable are going to be uh, properties that lead to problems with um, learnability. So I think there is this, this um, so I, I'm not sure it's ever articulated in quite this way, but there's this this um, this use of theoretical physics as a paradigm success story of scientific exploration led to this particular view of 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 syntax, um, and that this exacerbated the learnability problems. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's actually a an important point because um, Chomsky and, and his followers have frequently referred to their enterprises Galilean linguistics using Galileo's um, um, revolutionary work in physics as, as a model um, and and um, the the drive towards abstract uh, um, 
um, sub subatomic particles as as uh, a basis for um, advances in physics um, beyond relativity to quantum mechanics is, is certainly a model they often invoke, uh, particularly in the minimalist program. Um, and and oddly enough, it's few, if any, um, of, of the people involved in that enterprise have ever asked or considered the question that perhaps describing uh, human learning and cognition and the manner in which we represent um, uh, cognitive objects to ourselves, both linguistic and others, might not uh, be entirely different than the way in which uh, the physical universe works, uh, even if one um, assumes, as we, we generally do, we would, I think, that the basis for all uh, cognition and representation and learning is physical and in the brain, but the nature of the representation and learning process is not best built on analogy with um, with um, mechanics, uh, physical mechanics, and and and, and uh, quantum mechanics. Would it be fair to say that a major paradigm shift is going to be required for researchers in that uh, generative tradition to uh, acknowledge the uh, the possibility of seeing the world a different way? Uh, that, that paradigm shift has been underway for at least the last 15 to 20 years, um, but it's been largely taking place within computational linguistics uh, and and um, computational learning theory uh, and, and its application uh, to problems in cognitive science. Uh, so initially what started out as a, an, an interesting um, sort of statistical and probabilistic approach to language engineering has been imported into um, um, cognitive modeling and, and then into linguistics, um, except that different people are doing it. It's a younger generation that's doing it. Um, and as is so often the case in paradigm changes, very few people um, who hold to one paradigm embrace, discard it and embrace another, but new generations come up in which um, newer methods uh, give rise to alternative theories. And I think that that's been happening. Uh, and that in fact, you will see if you look at journals and at conferences that uh, the more traditional a generative model um, is quickly becoming a minority option and that um, more um, um, data-driven, stochastic, probabilistic, and Bayesian models for both language acquisition and cognitive modeling in general are very much uh, on the rise. Yes, I mean, I think within linguistics itself, there is also something of a paradigm shift that's been going on with um, within the minimalist program. I mean, one of the positive aspects of the minimalist program is an attempt to, to reduce the number of levels of hidden uh, representation to get rid of um, deep structure uh, and various other simplifications that do have the positive effect of, of making them, at least in principle, more easily learned. Uh, so I think if one looks at the formalization of minimalist syntax, which is being carried out by um, Ed Stabler, uh, one can see that um, a suitably pared down version of that minimalist syntax in fact becomes equivalent to certain types of phrase structure grammars that can be learned from data. So I think there is a, 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 a possibility for a uh, rapprochement, um, though I think it's um, highly unlikely that um, sort of mainstream generative syntax is going to go down that route. One thing that uh, struck me is that the work of uh, Zelig Harris seems to be referred to in a number of places, the distributional work in particular, which of course uh, fell out of favour during the uh, emergence of the uh, the, the uh, alternative proposals of Chomsky. Uh, do, you, uh, do you feel that in some sense there's also a, 
renaissance of interest in, in this in this previously neglected extent work. Uh, absolutely, and in fact, um, under under um, the influence of the work that I've been doing with um, Alex, I occasionally referred to an, um, the emergence of a new paradigm, which I call the um, Harris Jelinek paradigm, um, hyphenated after Zelik Harris and Fred Jelinek. Fred Jelinek was the um, computational linguist who did speech recognition work um, as well as uh, machine, statistical machine translation at IBM and then later moved to Johns Hopkins. Um, and um, basically what you see then is an application of statistical modeling methods to the distributional approach of, of Harris, um, which, which Chomsky in 56 had thought he had dispatched and many of the arguments um, actually, there's only one or two major ones that that that, that he advanced in the, in, in the syntactic structures book in '57, not '56, um, are continued um, continue to hold sway amongst um, hardcore generative grammarians or transformational generative grammarians. Whereas, um, in fact, those arguments have been seriously challenged uh, by by people like Pereira in a seminal paper in 2000, showing that in fact um, the kind of differences in um, uh, probability of occurrence uh, that Chomsky claimed uh, didn't show up between uh, sentences like um, green ideas sleep furiously and sleep green furiously ideas, word salads versus semantically anomalous but syntactically uh, more or less well-formed sentences, that they, they, they actually can be predicted by more sophisticated methods that um, use um, things like smoothing um, that, that Chomsky hadn't anticipated and there's been an explosion of work over the last 20-30 years. Um, exactly along the, the lines of, of combining Harris's insight into distributional uh, patterning uh, as a key to understanding syntactic structure as well as a fair component of lexical and semantic meaning and the stochastic modeling methods that provide the engine for uh, machine learning. Uh, and whereas these were largely inspired uh, in the computational linguistics community by engineering concerns to develop language technology over the last 15, 20 years, certainly over the last 10 years, their role in, 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 in scientific explanation, both of language acquisition and, and, and representation and cognition in general, have become uh, enormously important. Um, and that's, that's, I think, exactly where the paradigm change is happening. Uh, as, as Alex points out, uh, the more explicit modeling work, mathematical modeling work on minimalism by Ed Stabler has also helped a great deal by clarifying the formal and uh, computational properties of, of minimalist grammars. It becomes easier to um, formulate them in ways which uh, allow us to, to see where, where language ac acquisition becomes a problem and what, what kind of data and what kinds of methods can be used to overcome them. Something that strikes me about these um, technological developments is uh, whether they make the argument for the poverty of the stimulus intrinsically something of its time. Uh, I'm thinking of the long quote from Chomsky that you give on, uh, Chomsky 1965, that you give on page 25 of your book, uh, where he says, among other things, um, criticizing the state of uh, empiricist work at the time. Further empiricist speculations contribute nothing that even faintly suggests a way of overcoming the intrinsic limitations of the methods that have so far been proposed and elaborated, yeah. which sort of invites the suggestion that uh, you know, this argument holds for now, but at some point in the future, possibly there will be solutions to these problems. Possibly Chomsky doesn't, didn't at the time hold out any hope for that. Um, do you feel that's, um, that in some sense this is a this is an argument of historical interest only now. Yes, I mean, I, I think that, that I, I think to be fair, many of Chomsky's uh, criticisms of Harris, some of which are laid out in the logical structure of linguistic theory, are very much to the mark. He um, 
because although Harris created the impression that he had um, a, a fully developed and fully articulated theory of, of how these distributional methods could work, in fact, when you look at them in more detail, you can see that there's a great deal of um, vagueness um, and a large number of places where input is needed from the linguist to sort of manage this, this process. Um, so I think, you know, I find myself convinced by quite a lot of Chomsky's criticisms of Harris's work as it was um, at, at the time. However, of course, you know, 1965 was quite a long time ago. And we've made a great deal of progress since then. So I think that we can, you know, take another look at um, at these proposals and, you know, evaluate the new proposals, which are, may not have the flaws that the old proposals had. I think very much the same thing has happened with regard to phrase structure grammars, that uh, Chomsky rejects phrase structure grammars as being inadequate um, in in, well, in the late 50s and the 60s. And those criticisms, I think, were to a great extent valid. However, modern phrase structure grammar, as um, reintroduced by, you know, Gerald Gazdar and a number of other people in the in the 1980s, doesn't suffer from the flaws that the old phrase structure had. So the the rejection of the of classical phrase structure grammar doesn't really cast any light on the validity of modern phrase structure grammar formalisms. And again, going back to Stabler's work, I think we can see that, you know, there is this convergence between the ideas in the Moonless program and ideas growing out of uh, phrase structure grammar formalisms. There is, there is an interesting pattern here, though, which is that Chomsky raises very good criticisms of existing methods. So, for example, in 57, he showed quite nicely that um, a simple um, a word-based biogram model for predicting syntactic structures equivalent to a certain kind of um, finite state automata was not going to work. And and that argument stands, but and there were much more sophisticated models around both at the time and then subsequently very soon after using um, different kinds of um, um, finite state automata and also using um, things like uh, smoothing to account for absence of data as, as Alex just pointed out, uh, Gazdar and then after him, um, people doing future structure grammars um, addressed the very uh, important criticisms that Chomsky had brought against simple context-free grammars and showed that uh, an enriched um, uh, context-free system, perhaps uh, more powerful, reaching a mildly context-sensitive status, but still basically a phrase structure grammar, could overcome the problems that Chomsky had pointed out, the empirical problems of um, um, dealing with certain kinds of syntactic dependency patterns very elegantly. But um, for some reason, the advances are never fed back into the debate uh, on the generative side. Uh, the linguists tend to dismiss uh, this work um, using the old arguments so that that's why you get this kind of splitting off of alternative uh, paradigms, formal paradigms being pursued, um, often responding to Chomsky's criticisms, but the, the responses, uh, which, which I think correct problems and show the power of a new paradigm, don't tend to go back into the mainstream of, of, of uh, Chomsky-inspired Chomsky work, which is a problem. It, it produces a certain lack of cohesion in the field, which is a problem. My impression has been that there's a lot of received wisdom. Um, in fact, turning to chapters three and four of your book, which are on um, two well, the different topics, the first on the um, the input data, the primary linguistic data, and, and four on the uh, learnability and the goal paradigm. Um, but in both cases, there, there seems to be a there's a sort of received opinion that, that in the first place, 
uh, negative evidence isn't relevant to learning. And in the second case, that uh, these learnability results are completely uh, strong and widespread and cannot be overcome by any reasonable means. Uh, and in both cases, you would argue that that's a, that's a misperception of kinds. Well, well, yeah, I mean, the received wisdom is received only in, in certain quarters uh, um, and repeated uh, widely, but in other quarters doing uh, frontline work in, in learning theory, computational learning theory. Those results were not received uh, for very long. In fact, it's not even clear. It seems clear. That, in fact, Gold himself was perfectly aware of alternative approaches and, and didn't make the claims often attributed to him, at least not uh, in, in, in the uh, format uh, assigned to him. Uh, and then it was our concern in the book to correct those mis misconceptions uh, uh, and, and, and to indicate that, in fact, uh, there have been enormous advances in, in that. Alex has referred to in, in computational learning theory, which uh, shed light on the limits of learnability for classes of representation, which had never been considered by mainstream theoretical linguists and uh, um, open up new horizons for efficient learnability of fairly powerful formalisms, which are not those that are generally assumed to constitute the, the Chomsky heart. And this, this is a, a main point in the book. Yes, I mean, I think that being a little uncharitable here, one could say that if, you know, the only paper in language, formal language theory you ever read was, you know, Chomsky's papers from 56 and um, 59, and the only paper on learnability you ever read was Gold's paper from 1967, then yes, you'd, you'd, you'd see that there was a huge learnability problem. But of course, there's been a huge amount of work in both fields. Um, I think that the, one of the problems is that, um, because of the way, the direction that theoretical linguistics has taken, um, the study of learnability has not occupied the central place that it should have. Though Chomsky often says that, you know, they're, they're really, we're not really interested in particular languages, we're interested in UG, you know, what the mental powers are that allow uh, human children to acquire their, their native tongues. Um, though he, he, he puts the focus very much on a learning issue, he then turns away from any sort of study of, of learnability. Um, and, it's, and it's very noticeable that Chomsky himself really has almost nothing, has said almost nothing about learnability. Uh, almost none of his own research has been uh, directed towards studying learnability, um, uh, you know, in, in, any, in any real sense. Um, so I think there is this, um, this sense in which, starting from these two seminal papers of, of Chomsky and Gold, um, that the received wisdom, what, what linguists have been taught, you know, has not really gone beyond those two papers. And if you only look at those two papers, then you're going to end up with a, a, a very misleading view of, of the field. You make the case that the, uh, the Gold result is in many ways, a very weak negative result. I mean, the, referring to the 67 paper that's so widely quoted. Yes, I mean, it, it is a weak result. I think, um, obviously, you know, he it was a, a, a massively important paper and really one of the first attempts to, to formulate the idea of, of learnability in a mathematically precise way. So it's unsurprising that he, he didn't get it um, absolutely right. So there are a, a large number of differences between the uh, situation that the learner finds himself in Gold's model 
and the situation that a child finds himself in. Um, and we devote quite a significant chunk of the book to sort of articulating those differences between the, the learning model and the, the true situation that the, the, the child finds itself in. And of course, any mathematically tractable model is going to be idealized massively and is going to differ. But I think there are a number of areas where um, the gold model um, is particularly weak and inappropriate. And one of those really is to do with um, negative evidence, which I think explains the importance that negative evidence has, has had in um, the theory of, of language, language acquisition. An importance which I think really it, it shouldn't have. I think it's a bit of a ultimately a bit of a sideshow, the issue of uh, negative evidence. There, there are two additional points I think that are worth making in connection with the, the issue that you've raised, Chris, which is um, one is that um, uh, in the government binding period of, of uh, Chomsky's uh, uh, framework, uh, there was uh, uh, somehow a, a view put forward that the learning problem had been in principle solved. Uh, because uh, the um, number of parameters associated with universal grammar, which constitute the universal grammar, was finite and the number of values small, uh, ideally binary, and therefore the number of possible languages or grammars for languages was finite and hence uh, on the gold model was learnable, that class was learnable. Um, and in fact, this, this was, um, as we tried to argue in the book at length, uh, tried to show that this is a serious mistake um, that in fact finiteness doesn't guarantee efficiency and learnability. There are problems of, of um, the complexity which are just not uh, um, dealt with in that framework. And now, interestingly enough, in the move to the minimalist framework, parameters have been increasingly downgraded to the point that, in many cases, they've been, in some theories of syntax or versions of minimalism, totally jettisoned. So even this finiteness result, which was supposed to be the gold-based key to learnability, has been discarded. Uh, and therefore, there's um, something of a situation of disarray in, in what it is that guarantees learnability in, in, in the minimalist framework. Um, the, the, the second point, that, following on from Alex's comment on negative evidence, which is uh, Chomsky himself points out that uh, indirect negative evidence is non-occurrence or low frequency of occurrence is itself an important source of information, but uh, no attempt was ever made that we are aware of to in the mainstream framework of uh, generative grammar to, to formalize that idea. Um, we do try and um, develop at least an outline of a stochastic or probabilistic model of indirect negative evidence, which uh, can compensate for the absence of direct negative evidence in an interesting way uh, and greatly facilitate efficient learnability. And uh, this is a, a fairly obvious move, and it seems surprising to us that it, that it wasn't attempted before, although, of course, uh, computational learning theorists have been working in this direction for a long time. My impression that I get from uh, reading some of the examples from the literature that you mentioned is that there are, there are some quite significant logical errors in uh, some prominent research drawing upon those um, computational existing computational findings and attempting to apply them to the, uh, the case of uh, generative grammars. Uh, presumably these, these arise because people are not uh, not aware or kind of neglectful of some of the subtleties of the uh, of the gold approach, some of the assumptions and some of those limitations that they impose. Yes, I mean I think there are there are a number of um, flaws in the way that the gold result is used. Some of them are 
quite obvious, and some of them are quite subtle. I think one of the most important ones that we um, bring out in the book that hasn't really received uh, the attention that it should have is this distinction between the um, learnable class that can be learned by, so the class of languages that can be learned by an algorithm, and the class of hypotheses that can be entertained by the algorithm during the course of learning. Um, and I think this distinction is often rather blurred. And in fact, even in Gold's original paper, um, there's a point at which he, he conflates these two things. And once, once one understands that these two things are logically distinct, one sees that really there is a, uh, a huge gap in attempts to use um, uh, Gold-type results to show that the learner must have uh, some sort of rich domain-specific knowledge of um, the class of languages that is available, um, i.e., which, which I think goes really to the heart of what the debate is about, namely uh, whether there is, a, 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 you know, whether linguistic nativism is really um, learnability elements. You take a position that I, I may be misrepresenting here, uh, that the Chomsky hierarchy is overused as a source of candidate classes for natural languages. Am, am I uh, correct? Yes, that's, that's one of our main concerns, is to show that the Chomsky hierarchy, as impressive and important as it is, is a piece of early piece of work on formal language theory, um, and in identifying a fairly natural class of languages and of automata or grammars to compute them, is by no means a, a sacred um, uh, class or, or hierarchy of classes that in fact it's possible to define um, classes of languages which runs more or less orthogonal towards it, that includes subsets, proper subsets of um, elements of different classes of the Chomsky hierarchy. So for example, you could define um, some of the classes that Alex has in, in his more technical um, um, grammar induction work. Uh, you can define classes that include um, context-free, some context-free grammars and some mildly context-sensitive grammars, but not all context-free or not all context-sensitive grammars. That's richly expressive and is still efficiently learnable from uh, fairly straightforward distributional or obser observationally distributional data, distributionally observational data. And um, once you once you break away from the Chomsky hierarchy as as the fra only framework within which language classes can be defined. Um, the the, the uh, possibility for rich, expressively rich, but computationally efficiently learnable classes uh, is is uh, much greater, and that that opens up um, perspectives and horizons that weren't there before uh, for for data driven uh, distributional learning, uh, yielding interesting grammatical classes, uh, and that's that's certainly an, a major uh, focus of the book is to get that point across. Yes, I, mean, I think there's one other point, really, which is that um, you know, the Chomsky hierarchy is incredibly early. Uh, and so the, the resources that Chomsky had available to him were, were in a sense, kind of limited. Um, and so he, he, he used a essentially a top-down system, a, a system of, of, of rewriting rules. Uh, I think you know, from a modern perspective, um, one really wants to switch to a notion of, uh, of bottom-up derivation. This is an idea which is also accepted within the minimalist program. Um, and I think the, the other major flaw with the, um, with the Chomsky hierarchy is that as it was so early, it, 
entirely predates the discovery of, uh, you know, the invention of the theory of uh, computational complexity, which wasn't until um, you know, nearly 20 years later. Uh, and so as a result, in a sense, it's missing the uh, most important classes, which are the classes of languages that can be efficiently processed. So I think from a modern perspective, one would want to, first of all, um, you know, turn the... Uh, turn the Chomsky hierarchy upside down, if you like, and view it being a bottom-up rather than a top-down process. This gives you a hierarchy which includes things like um, mildly context-sensitive languages, multiple context-free grammars, and at the top, if you like, the class of, of, of languages in um, p-time. That's the languages that can be efficiently processed. Now, once you have that sort of revised uh, hierarchy, then one can make the move that, Chomsky, that, um, that Shalom suggests here, which is to look at classes that run orthogonal to um, those classes. So looking at subclasses of context-free grammars, subclasses of mildly context-sensitive languages that have the right sort of properties that will allow them to be learned. Because, you know, the, the I mean, one of the problems with the um, Chomsky hierarchy is that the class of context-sensitive languages is, is in completely the wrong place, really. I mean, it's uh, in retrospect that was just um, that was just an error. Um, but you know, it's, it's such an incredibly early paper that, of course, there are going to be um, errors in it. It's also um, just to bring out a point that's already come up, um, which is the difference between um, decidability and complexity is very important. So that the gold work was focused largely on issues of of convergence, uh, which which uh, entailed notions of decidability for a grammar. Could you effectively learn a grammar um, um, with resources going towards infinity and you were worried about uh, basic completeness of, of, of the grammar and of also the um, learning process converging with more or less unlimited data and, and time, which makes the whole paradigm far too permissive in that sense. Um, and, and, and similar uh, considerations apply to the, the Chomsky hierarchy. So, so you see that focus also in debates, early historical debates. So in 1973, there was a, a Peters Ritchie result. So um, Stanley Peters and Graham Ritchie published a paper showing that um, 1965 transformational uh, grammar, model of grammar from aspects was equivalent to a, a universal Turing machine, which indicated that it was far too powerful. It didn't give you a full completeness. It only gave you a recursive enumerability, which means that it wouldn't halt uh, for, for ill-formed sentences. Uh, and this was treated as a serious problem. Well, I mean, one of the concerns in the book is to show that really complexity is a, is a, is a more important problem than completeness or decidability. Uh, that you can have systems which are, you know, in, in their full extent, um, undecidable, like first order logic. Um, but um, interesting and, and powerful, uh, powerful subsets of representations of that system can be um, um, efficiently learned um, and even and and, and and of course decidable the, the proper subsets not the whole system uh, conversely you can have systems which are fully um, decidable and complete like um, um, propositional logic uh, but which um, for purposes of, of computation the complexity problem for deciding whether or not um, an arbitrary set of formulas is satisfiable uh, in a um, in a model is 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 uh, orders of complexity too high to be to be efficiently computed, uh, and the only way to solve that problem is by putting all sorts of constraints on on the problem. But um, that's where the action lies, and and we were trying to move the action from 
discussing often sterile discussions of questions of decidability and completeness to questions of complexity, which had been largely ignored, in part due to the focus on gold and in part due to the fo focus that Chomsky had put on, 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 on in the Chomsky hierarchy on those kinds of questions. And you also point out that some of the decidability results uh, relate to hostile presentation and learning in countable time. No, those are learnability, yeah, learn, uh, convergence and learnability results that, that, that you will get um, you will get serious problems of non-convergence if, if you allow um, any presentation of data. And the same problem occurs with probabilistic learning models, um, whereas, if, of course, if you constrain the set of presentations to be friendly um, in a way uh, that closely resembles the language learning situation of children being taught by parents and peers who want them to learn, then, then some of these problems disappear. Not all of them, and you can't make the presentation too friendly or you encode what it is, you encode too much in the data, but, but you do... You do um, when you when you put interesting constraints, make the learning problem tractable, or at least open up the possibility of making it tractable in a way that that uh, comes closer to approximating the real learning situation, where most in general teachers don't not um, don't want to frustrate learning but promote it. Yes, I mean I, I think it's it slightly depends on what the when when you have a learning model, um, there's always this is going to be a certain amount of flexibility in how you set it up. And it really depends on what it is you're trying to do with this model. Um, so if what you're trying to do is actually understand how something does happen, um, then you're going to set it up in a way that uh, maybe is um, helpful for, a bit more helpful for the learner because we're trying to understand, you know, how things, how language acquisition might take place. Um, if, on the other hand, you're trying to show how that it can't take place in certain ways, then you might say, well, OK, we're going to require um, uh, the child to learn even under quite pessimistic, um, under quite pessimistic models. Now, uh, the, the problem really is that neither of these two approaches is going to be entirely convincing to people that hold the opposite view, because what you really want to do is to show that you can learn even under a pessimistic model or show that you can't learn even under an optimistic model. Um, and we don't really have those sorts of results. So at the moment, really, there's a, a sort of spectrum of results. Um, and under the more antagonistic ones, more adversarial ones, where uh, the learner, the examples are being produced, if you like, by some adversary who's trying to yeah, stop the, the learner from learning. Under those negative results, under those pessimistic models, we have some negative results which show that it's impossible. And under more uh, optimistic models, we have positive results. Um, and so the situation is still, um, uh, we don't have a, you know, a complete um, characterization of, of the conditions under which learning can and can't take place. Our time here is nearly up. Um, I would like to conclude by asking, I wondered really whether, the, whether you found that the book had had a hostile reception from anyone in the generative tradition or whether you find yourself almost entirely preaching to the converted? Well, um, <laughs> the book's been out for a little over a year, um, and it it's, um, hasn't gotten um, an enormous uh, response from either side. Um, uh, so, so generative grammarians seem, uh, or people who we kind of aimed it at, theoretical linguists with, inter with interest in both formal, computational, and uh, psychological questions or cognitive interests um, haven't haven't responded um, to a great extent. Doesn't seem to yet to be on their radar screen. Although there was a, a, a very favorable review in the linguist list, and we're hoping that might 
bring it to the attention of the people who uh, we want to read it. Our friends, of course, were aware of it because we sent it to them and asked them to read it and bothered them until we got a response. And these are people who are in the um, machine learning, computational um, um, learning, uh, language acquisition community. Um, but um, in general, I, what we're finding is um, that, um, and this is a, a comment, I think, on, on the um, sociology and culture of the field is that, that um, unfortunately, the field tends to be highly balkanized into self-contained communities. We're talking about theoretical linguistics, um, which reads a kind of self-generating literature, self-perpetuating literature. This book falls between the cracks and cuts across the lines, the party lines, which have been um, established. Uh, does take very seriously the poverty of stimulus argument. It takes seriously Chomsky's work, doesn't try and dismiss it, um, sees the importance of the original insights. Um, but then um, considers them in the light of more recent developments in, in, in both uh, computational learning theory and mathematical modeling techniques and an empirical evidence coming from um, psychology and biology and um, um, uh, theoretical linguistics itself. Um, so, so it really is an attempt to consider a problem from a, a wide multidisciplinary point of view in light of current uh, developments. And it's not a partisan book in that sense. It does have a perspective which is promoting and identified it. Um, but uh, from that, for that reason, it doesn't fit neatly into any of the established schools or uh, systems of, uh, that tend to command uh, loyalty. Uh, and um, unfortunately, the field doesn't seem to respond uh, in, <laughs> with a great deal of interest uh, unless it's able to identify and label uh, contributions. And I, I, I see this as a serious problem. Uh, that prevents uh, fruitful discussion, and I'm, I'm hoping that um, that will change because our, our book is by no means the only uh, book that's kind, uh, and the uh, other attempts have been made to raise these issues in, in, um, uh, from different perspectives but um, than ours, perhaps, but um, we find there's a similar kind of lack of inclusion of um, Let's say research that isn't that isn't uh, clearly marked as uh, as part of a, a tradition by by people who are in that tradition, and I think it's time that the field matured past those uh, very strong um, um, divisions uh, through, um, uh, that 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 I think uh, stand in the way of fruitful uh, discussion. Yes, I, mean, I think Shalom's right that there are uh, you know different groups of researchers and linguistics have sets different sets of completely incompatible assumptions. So for example, you have optimality theorists that have one set of assumptions, you have uh, principles and parameters theorists, you have um, sort of construction grammarians and so on. And, I, and some people seem to have this, this viewpoint, which I find profoundly unscientific, that, well, it's fine, we can all just have our separate incompatible assumptions and we can carry on doing our research in parallel. But of course, that's, that's really not how science works. At some point, one needs to resolve the incompatibilities between these assumptions and figure out, well, you know, maybe we should stop doing research on these and start doing research on something else. You know, you can't just, um, you know, carry along in parallel with completely different and incompatible assumptions. At some point, you need to, you know, resolve the fundamental empirical and scientific disputes between these, um, between these groups. And so what I worry about with this book is that it's just, um, you know, being pigeonholed as being a a a polemic of uh, an empiricist type, and then and as a result, not something that a uh, a mainstream generative grammarian should concern him or herself with. And I think that's um, that would be a, a great pity. 
So what comes next uh, for you both? Will you uh, continue to uh, attempt to bridge across these interdisciplinary gaps or are you more uh, focused on uh, broadening and, and deepening the work within within the tradition that you're most closely associated with? Well, my, my view um, has always been um, that you follow the problem uh, wherever it happens to lead. Um, you don't, um, as, a, as a scientist and an academic or a a person interested in a research project don't need a passport to um, um, cross uh, disciplinary boundaries. Those disciplinary boundaries are artificial, and the book, I think, is interdisciplinary in the fullest sense of the word, not as a matter of ideology, but because we wanted to consider a problem from a whole variety of perspectives. And so there's a, a philosophical, a computational, a mathematical, a psychological, and a straight theoretical linguistic perspective. Uh, or concern, set of concerns that, that are followed through uh, with the computational being primary of modeling, but the other, the other domains being relevant. Because that's the only way you can talk about the problem in an interesting way and consider evidence that's relevant. So you can't simply rule out evidence. And, and, uh, so, so my, my interest is, is, is to continue to, um, to follow through on, on these issues. My, I, over the last, couple of years um, sort of moved back into semantics, worrying about the, the problems we raise in the book. What's learnability in semantics and what would a, a, a reasonable um, and efficiently learnable representation system look like? Because the problems we raise for syntax, I think, arise for all parts of linguistic representation. Um, I, I hope to continue working with Alex, um, as well as other uh, colleagues, um, on both syntax and semantics on issues of learnability and, and natures of representations. But I. I think this kind of work can't go on just amongst linguists and psychologists and cognitive scientists and mathematicians and uh, com computer scientists have to be involved. Um, these, these distinctions become increasingly uninteresting um, the, the deeper the research goes. Now, in, in that sense, it's, it's kind of weird that um, the people who brought us the analogy between linguistics and physics are the ones often who are least um, inclined to... Um, to follow these kinds of um, journeys across borders, uh, uh, considering work done in other fields, which is directly relevant to their concerns. Um, but, but I think linguistics has no choice. It's the ultimate um, interface uh, field in, in cognitive science and, and, and therefore has to consider this kind of work. And that means more than just looking at um, you know, MRIs on, on areas of the brain that are stimulated and announcing you found uh, the structure that you have been arguing for uh, uh, in, your, in your theory of syntax, I think it means uh, looking at, at work across a spectrum of uh, domains in, in, in cognitive science using a, a variety of methods. Changing methods often, I've had to move from, from sort of categorical algebraic methods to probabilistic and stochastic models simply because that's what's required in order to, to, to get a, a good uh, handle, a good perspective on the nature of the phenomenon you're studying. And, um, and I would hope we would we would draw our students into that perspective um, because that's what it is, I think, to do research that's interesting in our field. Um, from my point of view, I mean, if I look back at the book now, if I have one minor criticism of the book, it's that it's generally, I think, a little negative. What it's showing there really is that a certain set of arguments that something is impossible or invalid. And showing that something is not impossible isn't quite the same as showing that it's possible. So in my current research, what I'm really trying to do is switch to a more, uh, 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 more um, getting positive results. Uh, I think the book is a, was a useful, uh, actually essential bit of sort of brush clearing, you know, clearing the intellectual territory. But um, I think 
what I'm more interested in now is actually uh, extending various positive, positive learnability results I've had and trying to see how close we can get them to the sorts of representations that we know we need to account for the complexities of natural language. Um, and also trying to uh, present them in a way that's um, accessible to linguists that may not have a, uh, a, a great deal of technical training. Well, I wish every success to both aspects of the program. Uh, but in the meantime, let me say, Alex Clark, Shalom Levin, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. I've been talking to Alex Clark and Shalom Latin about their book, Linguistic Nativism and the Poverty of the Stimulus. This is Chris Collins for New Books in Language, saying thank you for listening.